a most original and creative talent in our business. Would you welcome Mr. Orson Welles? Ladies and gentlemen, Orson Welles again, come to call for another visit. Good evening. This is Orson Welles. Buck Benny, the two-fisted, quick-triggered marksman who shoots from the hip and never misses. Well, Joel, again, this is Buck Benny speaking. Welcome to Orson Welles Commentaries. And we have a special guest today who hopefully will be joining us other times. His background on Orson is amazing. We should probably, all three of the rest of us, just get off and just let Vincent talk the whole time. But we have Vincent here. And Vincent, uh, why don't you give us your background as far as Orson goes and what you're working on? I think you're working on even a book on Orson, I think. But uh, go ahead and give us a background, Vincent. Yeah, that's right. So I'm a, a media historian. I've studied the career of Orson Welles mainly uh, during this time around the 30s and 40s. And I'm writing a book right now on his unfinished adaptation of Heart of Darkness and its connection to Wells's uh, racial and anti-fascist politics. So uh, these commentaries, uh, this commentary in particular, where he starts getting, I would say, very political, very uh, in-depth political analysis is uh, right up my alley. So happy to be here. Thanks for the invite. You're so welcome. And uh, while we were off camera, Kathy and I were talking that we are, are speculating that the reason we're even getting more political now than we were in the early episodes of this series is because the early episodes were sponsored. Uh, and so I'm sure whether on purpose or yeah. by accident, unconsciously, Orson was kind of uh, leaning more towards entertainment and trying to keep the sponsors somewhat happy and so forth, I'm, I'm sure. And at this point, he has no sponsors just sustaining. So I think he sort of takes that as license to just go for it and uh, really jumps on the political banner. Um, one thing I noticed with this, and I was wondering if one of our folks could point this out to me, uh, he calls uh, it, uh, what does he call it? You know, uh, is what he says over Uno, and over again. Yeah. 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 I've never heard of anybody. That's the United uh uh, what are we talking United about? Nations, Nations Organization. Organization. Yeah. Exactly. And I figured that out as we went along, but I was like, I don't think I've ever heard it re referred to as you know before. It's always been the United Nations or something like that. Is this the first time you've heard that too, Kathy? Yeah, me oh, too. yes, and it's also probably the first year of its existence. So, right. uh, uh, again, so he's thinking, oh, this is going to catch on, this you know thing, but no, it didn't really catch but, on. <laughs> but it's, it's, a, it's symbolic uh, of the way that... Um, Everybody's trying to figure out what is the power of this organization? Is the U.S. going to give up ultimate power to this international organization? Right. Do you have, you know, that's what this whole thing is about. Russia trying to go, no, no, you can't tell us what to do. And people in the United States going, no, you can't tell us what to do. We won't give over our ultimate control to the, it's the same way with the atom bomb. Right. Uh, so, but, so, little thing. Okay. Terry, um, maybe you can give us some uh, of your uh, things you notice from this background. You usually point out little pieces and then uh, we can have Vincent uh, dive into whatever he wants in the pieces you're sharing about. But go ahead, Terry. Yeah, I, I don't want to get too much into, um, particularly because Vincent is here, too much into uh, Wells' commentary um, politically, uh, because for me, it was it was consistent with his um, with his previous commentaries. Right. Um, I, I thought there was there was one area where he slightly departed 
but but more interesting to me than that was the the um, political setting of um, the references, and the the one name that uh, the first name that that he raised was that of uh, Andre Gromyko, who was the um, eventually became the the foreign minister of the Soviet Union, but at the time was the permanent representative of the USSR to the United Nations organization. And Gromyko was an interesting character. He had been uh, very involved in the uh, leadership of the Soviet Union throughout the Cold War and uh, was key in the creation of the United Nations. Right. He was the one who encouraged the UN to establish its headquarters in the United States, in New York City, rather than where the Europeans and the Americans wanted it, ironically, which was in uh, in Geneva. And there had been, and is still actually a UN, uh, huge UN operation in, in Switzerland. But Gromyko wanted the United Nations headquarters to be in the United States so that the Americans could not say, well, we're not going to participate in this as right. they had done previously. previously yeah. So Gromyko was a great chess player, almost a 3D chess player when it came to international um, politics. Well, it was but probably well, a brilliant idea, like you're saying, it gets us involved in it in a way that it sort of forced our hand at getting involved in it more than uh, he, he Gromyko compared this to the United States, you know, first helping to create and then refusing to be a part of uh, the League of Nations. Right. So that was his that was his strategy. You can't quit if it's in your country. Yeah. But Gromyko was, uh, as, as Wells points out, Gromyko did something um, uh, un, unheard of before, which was to walk out at one yeah. point when they were, because a lot of this is about Iran and oil. And so he, he and his delegation walked out at one point because they were gesturing that they disagreed with the way uh, there were demands for the Red Army to pull out of uh, Iran, which borders on the southern border of, of uh, the Soviet, the then Soviet Union. Yeah. And, and this came back to bite them later on when in uh, 1950, I believe it was, 49 or 50, um, the Soviet delegation, again in protest, walked out of the Security Council uh, meeting and it opened the door because they weren't there to veto the vote. It, it allowed the United States and its allies to then pass the resolution authorizing UN uh, activity. Well, I think it's in, really in interesting Korea. with the whole Iran piece being as uh, if you're a young person like myself and Vincent, then you might not uh, be aware of uh, Iran. <laughs> <laughs> that Iran was going back this far. I mean, I sort of became part of my thought process in like the eighties and things is when we were, uh, Iran was becoming a big deal and so forth. But uh, certainly it goes back to time immemorial, which it would, because as long as we've been around, we've been fighting over oil and uh, that's uh, a big deal. So I get that. Um, well, Vincent, let's go over to you and, and throw out anything you want as far as, uh, Terry's uh, um, musings were, and then uh, anything else kind of stood out to you from this episode? Yeah, so, I mean, to, to talk a, a bit about the politics, I think that this is definitely like a tour de force of, uh, of Wells sort of political analysis, because I think he does two things. One is at times he gets really into it, uh, really detailed, so much so that I was getting lost, frankly. But, um, you know, he, and, but he couples that with very, um, 
simple, but sometimes even auditory sort of like a message, right? His big takeaway on this is that is a defense of, of, you know, as he says, is just, you know, this needs to exist because we need a forum for discussion. And that's how all problems have uh, been solved from the beginning. So I think that's, um, but the other thing I think is the contrast between the detailed political analysis and that simple message is, uh, is he uses the child in that as well, the return to the child, which I thought was, at first, I thought it was totally cliche, and it sort of is. But uh, I think it works in the sense of, you know, uh, he wanted it to be like, a child needs to understand the big takeaways here. And if a child can, you know, br brutally say, oh, so the takeaway is this, um, you know, so I thought that was really smart. Um, I thought so too. I, to I was thinking the exact same thing, Vincent. I was thinking uh, at the beginning, we're going, okay, this is just kind of cheesy. But then I realized as he went through, okay, we are the child, or at least he's, he's making it to the point of, if I can get this child to understand it, and if I can force myself to talk in a way like I'm talking to a child, the audience will get this because I tend to talk above my audience, which he does. And it forces yeah. him to come down to our level. And for me, uh, boy, uh, if he has a child on every episode, that would be helpful for me. But anyway, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> no, I mean, me too, certainly. I, you know, it also connects to his idea of the slogan where he talks about, you know, he, uh, he turns to a common theme of, of Wells's sort of politics, which is, you know, the sort of manipulation of the media, the problem of headlines, which he mentions. But I think the child idea ties it back into that, where he says the problem with sort of the world is the idea of a slogan, that you need a slogan to, to mobilize people to change the world. And he said, you know, in, in other places where he's not using a slogan, I don't understand what the heck he's talking about, because he's getting so into it. But then he says, you know, uh, the problem of the world is slogans, but really the only way that things change is slogans. And so I think it's really smart for him to both not do slogans and then return to this idea. Okay, what's my main takeaway? And that's what, um, you know, again, I say tour de force, and I think I mean that in the sense of he can go as detailed as you want to, but he can also give you a takeaway that even if you don't understand what he's talking about, you come understanding, okay, Wells thinks that we need, you know, and it's gonna, you know, it's gonna create a forum for change. Well, that's what I love about these commentaries. He always kind of puts a button on it that makes me understand it. Sometimes I'll, I'll be lost for the first 10 minutes of what he's doing. And then he'll kind of bring it in and I usually can get it. And then it makes the whole 10 minutes previously that I was kind of lost and kind of understanding brings that into focus. I mean, this whole thing about a slogan, what a brilliant thing and ties right into today. Because what we hear over and over again, if Republican or Democrat, whichever side you're on, whatever, but that the Republicans generally do a better job of finding a slogan or a little phrase that works, that, that, that defines yeah. something. Whereas the, the Democrats are sort of like, might have theoretically a better message or an easier message to present, but they don't come up with like a way to sell it, not, the, not a little slogan. And uh, what he's saying is, if you don't have a little slogan, a little way to get this across to the masses, it's not going to work. And, and historically, it's never worked if you don't have that. But even people with a great, uh, bad people with a great slogan can do amazing things uh, that are inappropriate or whatever, but, but it does help them to get their job done, whatever that job is, bad or good. Um, and I just thought that's a hugely interesting piece. Kathy looks like she has something to throw well, in. I'd just like to add that um, uh, from my way of hearing also, um, Orson bringing in daddy, tell me this, daddy, I'm asking mm -hmm. questions that it also to me brought in the emotion of family, which yeah. to me would bring the women, you know, I mean, stereotypical, but, but also sort of, um, 
turn this means war and uno and all this and then talking about the bomb it brings it, it back from the world of politics to why everyday americans have to care um because if you don't care about anything else you need to care about your family and you you know i mean and what what better way to do now i think if he did that every single week it would you know it would play up the cliche but the fact that he's bringing this in every once in a while as just his very different ways of trying to address the issue to make us understand it i was also really impressed by the the sort of the emotional pull of what our stakes are sometimes i hate orson i hate 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 the fact that he can do these things that i go this is stupid. This is never going to work, Orson. You're going to fall on your face. And then he pulls it out at the end, and I'm going, that was freaking brilliant. And I can't <laughs> – I mean, I if I was writing this uh, – you know, Terry probably knows this from a writer's perspective. And think, if you're writing this, you kind of go, okay, I get two minutes into it, and I de- feature this little girl. That's not working. I jettison that and go on to something else. He sticks with it, and eventually it works. He sucks in his audience, and – God, I love that man. But anyway, well, Daryl, once again, you are incorrect because uh, <laughs> I, 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 I seriously, I, I, I want to point out one thing. I, I tended in all of these commentaries to sympathize and empathize with Orson Welles, and particularly to admire his, uh, as as Vincent has pointed out, his nuanced uh, c- capability of, of yeah. um, you know diving deep and being simple at the same time. The one. At the one point in this commentary that made me uncomfortable was his simplistic uh, insistence that the Russians did not want war. And mm. you know, on one hand, who wants war? Well, you know, right. those who profit from war, I guess. Yes. But, <laughs> but I thought he, he might have undermined his case just a little bit by being so openly, um, one might even say naive, about yes. saying that the other side, if we want to put it in us, them, uh, terms was uh, you know, they were they they were good and you know we should trust them and believe them and yeah, it's a, it's a nice thing to to have those empathies but I th- I thought he just a little bit undermined his uh, his credibility. Well, I hundred yeah. percent agree with that. I well, I think that that is this the weakness he's shown throughout this whole all of the commentaries we've had is this sort of blinder to uh, just really buying the whole liberal perspective. And that everybody okay. wants peace and we all want to live in a happy, joyful world. And there's some people that aren't thinking that way and don't support that and yeah. are against that. And he's giving them the benefit of the doubt more than he should. Yeah. And yeah. Exactly you know, right with that, Terry. Uh, and I, I can think see history has shown that that's an issue that, that doesn't sustain with these commentaries as well as yeah. a lot of people. But go ahead. Well, but, it, but it also makes some of this very moment when you could still say those things without the fear of the reactionaries going, you're a commie, you're a commie lover, you're a pinko. You know, this is, this is it just seems to me just of that little moment where you can still get away, you know, yes. I mean, where Rooseveltian liberals can get away with saying the Russians mean no harm because pretty soon the, um, you know, the, the bullying uh, uh, politicians are going to say, well, that's why say that. that must mean, you know, that, I'm so thankful that these commentaries were created when they were. Had he waited like a year or two later to do this, it wouldn't have worked. No station would have put him on. And if they did, he would have been accused of being a communist and all these things. Right. right? And it would have been a huge issue. The fact that it was right after the war, he could kind of slide in with this 
and certainly it was way more left than uh, would have been acceptable just a few years later. And so we, we get this nice little window of time that we can get this honest appraisal from his point of view. And, and I don't know if we would. Have and that. as he said, just a year after Roosevelt is dead and Roosevelt, yes. of course, made it clear to us that at that time, because they were our allies in fighting fascism, that we could be friends with the Russians. Yep. Yep. So he did have that working for him too. Yep. It was, you're right, Kathy, just the right moment. Just just. A, which, which said, Vincent, we need a 1946 course, right? A whole course that yes. just looks at all this stew going on, the moments, the, possibilities the fears the the forces coming together you can just play these commentaries as part of the course and it would be right along years but just this moment well i'm going to close it out there because i have another group waiting to come in um and and so we'll end this enjoy orson's commentaries this week i am really hoping we get vincent back on a number of occasions to do more of this i would love to have more that'd be great take on it and uh But I'm going to stop us there. Um, my group, hang out for just a minute because I want to talk to you for a minute before we let you go. Uh, but everybody enjoy Orson's commentary this week. A very powerful one, very different with the whole little girl piece. Uh, I just think you'll enjoy it. And gosh, Orson, can you keep on coming up with new ideas and try new things is just amazing. Uh, one idea that's starting to get a little old is the TikTok, TikTok thing. So hopefully he's getting away from that. We shall see. It sounded like it because he stopped it earlier this time and, and so forth. They even mentioned that, but we shall see. So thanks, everybody. Tick-tock, tick-tock. Dickory, dickory, doc. What's that, daddy? What's what, my child? Well, that tick-tock noise, daddy, that dickory, doc, clock ticking. Is it a bomb, daddy? Is it a time bomb? My child, you are certainly a regular listener to this program. Yes, it's a time bomb, as you say. Daddy, is it one of those atom things? One of these atom things, my child, is what it's intended to represent. Why, Daddy? Never mind why. Let's get on with this broadcast. Ladies and gentlemen, friends of the democratic persuasion, here comes another 15 minutes of comment opinion by Orson Welles. This is Orson Welles speaking. Last Wednesday, Mr. Gromyko of Russia took off his horn-rimmed spectacles, packed up his papers, stood up, and stamped out of the meeting. His friends and enemies were sorry to see him go. It was a short week, but not a merry one. On Monday, there had been speeches of welcome. Tuesday, the United Nations Security Council considered the question of Iran. Daddy, what is Iran? My child, Iran is a place where there is lots and lots of oil. What is oil, Daddy? Oil, my child, is a kind of magic. It keeps the machinery going. Without it, our modern world would squeak to a stop and rust on its axis, if you'll excuse the expression. If there wasn't such a thing as oil, there couldn't be such a thing as world war. You're using a lot of big words, Daddy, but you aren't saying anything. I've been listening to the speeches of the diplomats, my child, and the habit is catching. I wished merely to call your attention to the fact that this big Iranian squabble concerns not only the sanctity of a treaty, but also the output of an oil field. And what, Father, am I to infer from that comment? My child, you are to see the world for what it is, a field mostly untilled, still choked with the rank growths of need and greed. There you go, Daddy, with your fancy talk and highfalutin vagaries. Be specific, Daddy, give us facts. My child, I had gotten only as far as Tuesday when you interrupted me. All right, Daddy, tell us about Tuesday. 
Well, on Tuesday, said Mr. Gromyko of Russia, negotiations have taken place between the governments of the Soviet Union and Iran, although that fact is denied by the Iranian ambassador, and an agreement has been reached, said Mr. Burns of America. I cannot agree with a representative of the Soviet government, and China called for a vote, and only Poland raised its hand with the Soviets. Red Army troops still being on Iranian soil, the Iranian question was still on UNO's agenda. Now, Mr. Gromyko requested that the matter be dropped till April 10th, and Mr. Burns, who'd taken a very vocal part in the argument from the beginning, declined. Iran must have a chance to be heard, said Mr. Burns. And right away, a subcommittee was then appointed, which got nowhere. This brings us to Wednesday. Wednesday, that's where we came in, where Mr. Gromyko went out. Students of the tabloids pouring over the news pictures found in the spectacle of the Russian delegate walking out of the Security Council a reminder of the photos snapped in Geneva of the Japanese leaving the League. The fact that Gromyko was simply pulling an old parliamentary trick and that Russia was definitely not pulling out of the UNO was announced in Mr. Hurst's papers and their press cousins in the tiniest possible typeface. There commenced across the length and breadth of our land a great ringing and rubbing of hands ringing on the left and rubbing on the right. Russia's abandoned collective security. The cry went up in many accents. This means war. This means war, said two old gentlemen with red veins on their noses. This means war, they said, and clinked their martini glasses together, the sound ringing like a little silver victory bell in the careful silence of the reading room of the Union League Club. This means war, said the bewildered liberal, riding off in four directions at once and making a noise like a highbrow weekly losing a subscriber. This means war, said the wise money on its way to the fights at the gardens. The wise money was all on servo, by the way, and Graziano murdered him in the second round. This means war, said the mother of two children, the commentator of a hundred radio stations that told her this means war. Much was made of Mr. Gromyko's silence in the lobby of his hotel, where he repeatedly refused to stop and chat with the reporters. But he was on the record. The Security Council told us in London, said Dromico, to negotiate our differences with the government of Iran. We reached an agreement and our troops are on the way out. So, he said, in substance, what's the rush? What's it all about anyway? We don't like what's going on in Greece or Indonesia, remember? But of course, when we object to anything, the rest of you all denounce us as belligerent and obstructive. Thursday, Mr. Gromyko went for a motor drive, his limousine pausing flirtatiously at the UNO offices on Fifth Avenue and then continuing for a short sightseeing tour of the city. The rest of the council members, most of whom had made much of the Russian inclination towards secrecy, held a secret meeting. And on Friday, we heard jokes cracked at the council table, lots of jokes. Where I sat, the laughter sounded just a trifle hysterical. By this weekend, the men in our State Department are feeling like little boys who've been caught with their fingers in the cookie jar. In this case, the jar happens to have that time bomb at the bottom and carries some neat stencil lettering on the outside spelling, World Peace. Mr. Burns' courage held for about half an hour after Mr. Gromyko took his walk, and then the head of our delegation got the shakes. In sharp tones, he turned to the little Iranian ambassador and, much like a schoolmaster, forced the answers out of him, demanding that he stick to the issues. Mr. Burns was really worried. He's still worried today. Doesn't know how far he ought to go. He can't backtrack again, but should he stand firm? No, that time bomb is standing beside him, going tick-tock, tickery-dock, sending little cold mice up the spine of our Secretary of State. Right now, there's a conference in the White House. Mr. Burns is listening to Mr. Truman, or vice versa. 
I think this is a good time for both of them to listen to you. Public opinion polls show that 74% of the people in America don't think Russia is out to dominate the world. That percentage is surely popular enough to persuade even a diplomatico. Or is it? I wonder. I wonder, does anybody from Hunter College to the Kremlin believe that anybody wants war? As I started to say, the battle over Iran is a battle over oil. Let's not forget the big catch in Britain's clever proposal about undeveloped oil in Iran being portioned out by the United Nations. It sounds so good if you hear it fast, but what does it mean? It means England wants to let Russia in on the 8% of the oil she doesn't control. Situation's neither white nor black, just loads and loads of Near Eastern gray. Why doesn't the Red Army, all of it, go back where it belongs? Or choose your own answer. You buys your paper and you takes your pick. The Red Army does not go home because the brave troops of the Soviet are needed to guard weak areas in the world against the infection or reinfection of the fascist disease. Take the answer that fits you. Why don't British troops get out of Greece and Indonesia? Because they're needed to defend the British version of political democracy or because they're needed to defend the British version of economic imperialism. Are the communists ganging up on the world or is the world ganging up on Russia? Pick your slogan. Government by parliament versus party dictatorship. Pick your slogan. The socialist Soviet alone against a world held in bondage by monopoly capital. Pick your slogan. Western democracy alone against the Eastern superstate. Pick your word weapons. What slogan do you want? Daddy, I do not wish for slogans. I wish for truth. And for a world governed in the service of truth. My child, a slogan is a cheap thing at best and at worst a kind of lie. But for better or for worse, our world has never been changed without a slogan. Hearts are never stirred except by eloquence and men are never moved except by marching songs. Daddy, that is what is wrong with the world. Exactly, my child. And you'll have to write yourself a slogan so you can change that. My dear father, I believe you are a cynic, my dear child. I haven't the vaguest notion what I am. I believe myself to be an optimist. It is my constant study to look at everything twice and three times and even more. And I hope someday, my child, to be able to question as sharply as you do. You'll excuse me now if I sum up? Certainly, Daddy. Well, behind all the righteous huffing and puffing at Hunter College is the struggle of three great nations. One at its height, one on its way down, one on its way up. There are tragic differences yawning today between the Soviet Union and the Western democracies. Since Dumbarton Oaks and the Moscow Conference, Russia seems to have been plugging for an international organization devoted to formulating moral and legal endorsements of what the great powers have already decided between themselves. Says Russia, the powers that have won the war won the right to run the peace. If an argument ends in a fight, the nations with the men, the money, and the material will decide the issue. That means the big three. And from the Russian viewpoint... Majority rule means the big three. At Yalta, Stalin made it very clear that his government demanded the power of veto over anything that might be done by the Security Council. Now it begins to look as if he wants the right of veto over anything that might be said in the Security Council. If this should be true, it is the essence of a valid case against the Soviet Union in this contention. Well, the nations keep handing the ball to each other. You know as now 
more of a tennis court than a court of law, but the game is deadly serious, and everybody knows that if anybody loses the game, nobody will win the game. Let's repeat that. You know is not yet a court, a law court. In you know, everybody sits in the judge's seat and everybody stands in the prisoner's dock. That sounds as crazy as Alice in Wonderland without being nearly as funny, but the fact is that you know stands today where law always begins, in a clearing in the wilderness. You know is a place for argument, the old starting point, the primitive council of chiefs. And this is the first step in the direction of law enforcement. You know is not a court, you know is a forum. In any community, big or little, before there is a court, there is a forum. The forum is not a late sign of decadence. It is an early stage of maturity. We should not, therefore, despair of our world because the nations into which it is still divided are only capable of the forum and not of the court. We should rejoice that they've already managed that much. Yes, sure, Uno isn't strong enough to enforce world justice or to ensure world peace. Uno never will be strong enough if, because Uno is not strong enough, we abandon it now. And don't say the world will never change. The world changes all the time. Where I'm broadcasting, there used to be nothing but a few Indian teepees. And don't forget this Adam thing. This, this Adam thing will change the world faster than printers type of gunpowder. What's Yuna doing about it, this Adam thing? Well, the big powers want to edge each other out of various places for various reasons. Yuna won't end that competition. But the competitors are behaving themselves a good deal better than they would in a world trying to get along without you know. Sure, you can't stop a war with a forum. Sure, you can't bring a criminal to justice in a debating society. That's true enough, but LaGuardia Airport in New York would never have happened without Kitty Hawk, South Carolina. You've got to write laws before you can hire policemen to keep the laws, and you've got to talk about laws before you can write them. Very good, my child. It's time for Daddy to say goodnight. Please remember as you go off to sleep now that Daddy doesn't know where he is that he can't know. Maybe, maybe this is the beginning. Maybe it's the end. Who knows? He may have read these words, not by the lowering twilight of the gods, but by the first eastering flush of the dawn of history. Don't forget to say your prayers. Well, this has been Orson Welles speaking, bringing you another quarter hour of comment. It's been our custom on this program to read your letters, letters of protest and advice, of complaint and suggestion, all kinds of letters. You've written many thousands. Of course, we can only use a few. But I want you to know how much they're appreciated and how much help they are. As a sign of our appreciation, we've been sending the authors of the letters we use a radio, a really excellent five-tube table model. And this is to tell you that the offer still stands. Last week, we didn't have time for a letter, so next week, we're going to make time for two, which means two radios. This week's is from Mr. John H. Riley of Jersey City. It's about the Japanese-American soldiers. Uh, a few weeks ago, Mr. Riley says, uh, Mr. Wells, I wrote and asked you for your opinion on the Nisai soldiers. Uh, one who was born under the stars and stripes and should be considered a real American like any other born under our flag. Japanese-American soldiers fought and died for us and Yet when they went back to the West Coast, they were kicked around. You were afraid to give your opinion on the radio because you might get in bad with the West Coast. Yours very truly. Well, Mr. Riley, of course, is wrong about that, and I'm sending him a radio to prove it. When the race haters are in the majority, 
you won't hear me on the air. As long as you do, thanks for listening. Please let me come to call again next week. Same time, same station. Till then, I remain as always obediently yours. This is ABC, the American Broadcasting Company. <laughs>